Blog Talk Radio. Hello, everyone. This is BJ, also known as Billy Jones, the author of Everyday Folks and the creator of Everyday Folks Radio. Welcome to this Saturday, this Sunday edition of our show. This is a great day, a beautiful day here in Miami. And I'd like to say thank you to all of you who tune in weekly in support of our cause and the great work that we're doing here. And the purpose, by the way, just for those of you who are tuning in for the first time, is to celebrate the achievements and the lives of ordinary yet extraordinary individuals who are making a tremendous impact in their respective industries through their respective lives in our world. This week, I have a very special guest who you'll be meeting shortly, and I'll read her bio just before we bring her on. But first, I'd like to give a special thanks to Black Tongue Clothing, creator Kip Johnson and her amazing work. If you haven't had an opportunity to check out her products, they are available through a link on my homepage, my author page, which is www.billypauljones.com. Again, that email address is Website address, actually, is www.billypauljones, Billy with the Y, Paul, P-A-U-L, jones.com. And check the Who I'm Supporting page. And there you will see a list of vendors, uh, artists, entrepreneurs, you name it there, who I am supporting and believe in the great work that they are doing. As well, for those of you who like to call in at any time, great opportunity to speak to me or any of our esteemed guests. The call-in line is 347-539-5372. Again, the number is 347-539-5372. And for those of you who are a little bashful and perhaps may not want to speak to me directly, at least by voice or to our interviewee, you're always welcome to to email me as well. The email inbox is open and ready for you. And that is at everydayfolksbooks, everydayfolksbooks at yahoo.com. So the S on the folks and the S on the books at yahoo.com. And we look forward to receiving your comments, your questions, and feedback. With that said, I'd like to share with you something interesting that happened this week with me. I had an opportunity to speak to a student after class, and she came up to me and she mentioned, she said, Dr. Jones, I'd like to, um, I don't know what I want to do with my life. I'm going to school. I'm doing well in school. But in truth, I don't quite understand why it is that I'm, what I want to do and why I'm here. So we, the conversation ensued, and we spent about 40 minutes after class discussing her interests and her talents. And in the, out of that conversation, it, it, I, we both realized that she had such an interest in one field, which was science, but she had a passion in another field, which was culinary because she enjoyed cooking. She was very fascinated by food culture. She follows all the things that happens in the media regarding it, whether it be on television or on, on, the, on the computer screen. And in the end, every time she talked about the topic, she was just so excited about it. And I told her, this is that, that little excitement, that little trigger is very important for you. That's what you need to go in on and hone in on those talents and interests. Because at the end of the day, if you're getting paid to do the thing you enjoy, it makes it all the more worthwhile. And so I say to all of you who are out there, do consider all of your talents. We all have them. If you don't know what they are, it's okay to explore. And it's okay to realize that after you've explored a few things, 
you know best what is best for you or what you're not interested in, that's okay too, because it's just another step towards your discovering yourself and arriving where you need to be in terms of your own career goals or future interests. So with that in mind, I'd like to read a few words about our amazing, uh, uh, my amazing guest today, which is the amazing Dr. Adrika Richardson. Now, just so that you are aware, Dr. Richardson is a psychologist, and she brings years of experience in her industry, not only as a clinician, but also as a professor as well. I have the esteemed honor of working with this amazing lady, and you will see why students, again and again, they flock to her, and they seek her out during her office hours after class. She is... I call it, and, and she'll laugh when I tell her this on air when she comes online, but I call it community therapy <laughs> that she provides to her students, and they just flock to her. She's such a clinician and a scholar and truly on the cutting edge of where we need to be in the 21st century when it, when it pertains to the field. So here's a little bit about Dr. Richardson. Dr. Adrika Richardson was born in Tampa, Florida, and raised in Nassau, the Bahamas. She's a licensed marriage and family therapist in multiple states in the U.S., also been working with the culturally diverse population of, of age, culture, ethnicity, marital statuses, et cetera, for over a decade. Eager to gain a deeper understanding of systemic approaches, Adrika completed her Ph.D. in marriage and family therapy, therapy from Nova Southeastern University and expanded her training and developed a passion for working with couples and families with varying life issues, as well as the LGBTQ community. And just a, a final note for about her too, because it goes on and on, all the great things she does. From a collaborative land, she invited, invites her clients into a strong therapeutic alliance through meaningful conversations that are rich with empathy, understanding, curiosity, coaching, and personal empowerment. Her goal is to is to help clients become to become their full to become their full selves in both their personal and professional lives. And as I'm reading this, I could hear her saying this and I could hear what the students say because our students overlap. And if you have Dr. R, as I call her, or also known as Doc, you're in for a wonderful treat. She teaches the whole person. And so we're gonna go ahead and bring her online. Dr. Richardson, are you with me today? I am, and thanks for having me. <laughs> it is a pleasure to have you. You know, you and I, we, we go back, my friend. And I have to share this moment with you is important because you are the first psychologist on Everyday Folks Radio. Oh, I, it's my pleasure to be on, and I hope to share some insightful things for the audience. <laughs> Thank you so much. Just for those who are calling in for the very first time, you may want to make sure that you call me or call Dr. Richardson at any time. In fact, Dr. Richardson, you may have some feedback on your line, so periodically you may have to mute your line when I talk, so that way they don't sit us down. Okay, sure. Let me know. No problem. And so for those of you who are with us today, Dr. Richardson, Dr. Richardson is everything to me and everything to Broward College and to the community she serves. So, Dr. Richardson, we'll start with you. Why did you become a psychologist or choose to become one? Well, originally, um, I decided to put my career journey because I was trying to figure out when I went to college what I wanted to do. And my um, one of my aunts let me know that 
when she went to college, she studied this thing called psychology. And I was like, what is that? And she said, you know, it's a career where you can go and um, you can talk to people and develop relationships. I was like, I can get paid for people to talk. And so she said, yeah. And I was like, well, that's what I've been doing all along. Now I can get paid for it. I think that's what I'm going to major in. And from I started my academic journey, I majored in psychology and it just evolved from there. And so my passion came from the fact that I just have a passion for helping people. People always seem to want to mm-hmm. talk to me. And I said, well, this is great. I can do what I love, help people, but also um, build a career from this and make some money. So it kind of came full circle. That's awesome. That's awesome. I think also as well, you have a benefit that people naturally probably come up to you and tell you things that you probably don't ask, right? <laughs> I think that's one of the excitements of the job. Don't, don't you All the call time, what right? we – the community therapy? <laughs> <laughs> it's true. And I've watched you firsthand uh, speak at an open camp lectures. And even after those sessions, students flock to you like a campfire because they are so interested in what you have to say. And truly, they're asking questions that are relevant to their lives. And so I, I just have to sh- share with those who are listening. That's how awesome you are. And it also says how much you value your work. And you also motivate others to do it. So you studied psychology at Nova Southeastern University, and you also did your undergraduate work at another institution. Do you feel that your educational experience prepared you well for the industry? I think it did. And I think it's, it was a combination of initially I started out uh, majoring in psychology in undergrad, and then that evolved to get my master's in clinical psychology. But At some point during that journey, I transitioned a little bit to the field of marriage and family therapy because I found that its beliefs and its um, system of thinking fit more Mm -hmm. with my personality, so it evolved for me um, during my academic process. And with all of the exposure I've had in my training to different populations, it only solidified that I was doing exactly what I wanted to do. And I think that's, if I can share that with anyone who's listening, is that you want to make sure as you evolve academically that it's honing in on your skills, fitting more with your personality and who you are, because if it's not, then you're not really doing what you want to do. And so everything that I've done academically has only added to the depth of knowledge that, I, that I've that i gained over the years and made me feel better and more not only interested in my field, but more successful to be a great clinician. Mm, well said. And I know that as well. You have an, there is a, a denotation of a relationship, but what in your opinion is the state of relationships today in the 21st century? I think the state of relationships is constantly evolving. And that's one thing we need to understand. It's that mm-hmm. the ideas of what relationships were at the beginning, while some of those fundamental things still hold true, every relationship has its own unique signature. And so we can't put a stamp on relationships in general. We have to understand that each individual relationship is going to be a little different, but there are some foundational things that we've all carried with us through generations and understand how they impact us. I think relationships are, are vital. We need them as social beings. And once we understand how we make them, how we survive in them, that we could be all can be successful in any form of a relationship, friend, family, intimate, et cetera. Hmm. 
And in each of those relationships, having a healthy relationship obviously is something that is a lifelong commitment. And we do have different relationships with different individuals. So the way I love my mother is not going to be the same way I love my significant other, but it is still a foundation of love. And sometimes people perhaps may go into relationships with their list of their list of things that they just won't compromise. I remember one of your lectures, you mentioned that list, and I wrote this down because I find and all of the individuals who I know in my personal life, when we talk about, not I shouldn't say all, but those who, when we speak about personal relationship matters, they speak about the non-negotiators. Could you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Um, and this is something I talk about a lot with clients, whether they come in to see me as couples or as individuals. Um, on this gender, journey of self-discovery, by figuring out what matters to us. And when I talk mm-hmm. about non-negotiables, it's um, I tell people start out with a list of five to ten. Five would mm-hmm. be great. Ten would be ideal. And as you grow, sometimes the list shortens, but it shouldn't get longer right. than ten either. And non-negotiables are things that you are not willing to compromise on in a relationship. And the reason you aren't willing to compromise on those things is because those things are vital to who you are. They may be a part of your core value system. They may be a part of things you just need in order to survive and continue being in a healthy relationship. And so also on your list of non-negotiables, it should not be anything that you cannot give to your partner yourself. For example, I tell people, um, well, I really want someone who is seven feet tall. I'm like, okay, well, that is something that we will all like to date, someone who is extremely tall. Can you offer the height equivalent for that person if they said they only wanted someone who was um, five feet tall? Well, no. Right. So let's be a little bit more realistic with it. Or is that something that's negotiable? Because we know height is something we negotiate on all the time. But I'm thinking of a core value. If your belief system is in some spiritual or higher being, for most people, that's a non-negotiable. So you want hmm. to meet uh, or date somebody who has that same non-negotiable, that same faith-based systems, because I've seen a lot of couples come in and religion is a deal breaker. So you want to know hmm. for you, that's non-negotiable. Or I have had people who can negotiate on their religious values. So then that may not be on your list, but don't put something on the list. Like I want somebody who makes a hundred thousand dollars a year, but you only make in twenty thousand. That's unrealistic. So mm-hmm. you want your non-negotiables to be things that you have, things that are attainable, and they're realistic, and they are part of your core value system, like hygiene. That should be something on there. For some people, mm-hmm. that's a big deal breaker. You know, mm-hmm. hygiene is something, and figure out what specifically about it is is a non-negotiable for you. And so this is something you should take time with. I've also noticed over the years with me doing it that my mm-hmm. list has evolved. Um, the list I yes. started with, and I wish I kept the list, um, <laughs> it's not the same list that I have now, and it's not as long. The things that I thought that I want, um, it's not that they went away, but they don't seem as important anymore. But the things that are important are still important to me. And so those mm. keep and will still be the key things on my list. So that's one thing you want to do, get a piece of paper, jot down about five things that you are not willing to negotiate in a relationship and make sure that you put the sign somewhere that you can see daily. And it's something Mm -hmm. to be a daily reminder to you of what is important to you. And as you grow and evolve, so should your list, maybe just slightly, but these are helpful for you to build healthy relationships, knowing what you want first. 
Well said. And for those of you who are just joining us, you may call in at any time to me or Dr. Richardson at 347-539-5372. Again, our call-in line is 347-539-5372. And you can also reach out to us through email, which is everydayfolksbooks at yahoo.com. Again, that's everydayfolksbooks at yahoo.com. So, Dr. Richardson, you bring up a very good point. And, in fact, your question, your, 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 your advice just triggered a question from Chris, who's here in Miami. And so here's the question. I'll read it, and then you can jump in as you will. Uh, and you kind of answered it, but he, he asked, he or she, because Chris could be a, a gender-neutral name, do, negotiate, do non-negotiators or non-negotiables change, and is it up, okay to update them? You kind of answered that already. And what I'd say to Chris is that thanks for chiming in with us, change. But there are some core things about you. If you think about from the time you can remember your yourself, because a lot of us don't remember early memories, but there are some key memories we have. And if you think mm-hmm. back, I tell people, look over your last three relationships. There will be things that you notice about you that are consistent, that they do not mm-hmm. change. Very and true. those will probably help you identify your non-negotiables. But there will be things about you that you've learned through those relationships that have changed. So those things on your list may have to come off or be adjusted a little bit. And so, yes, non-negotiables may start out one way. They do evolve as you evolve in knowing yourself more. So great question, Chris. Hmm. Thank you so much and a great response as well. So I want to bounce back to you for a moment. I know that you're such high energy like me. We're high energy individuals. And we, we get our inspiration off of the, the experiences and the engagements with others. But I know coming up, Adrika definitely has some folks who inspired you. So who or what inspired you coming up in, up into your career or growing up, for that matter? Um, any individuals inspire you to be or become who you are or instilling you the mantras that you live by today? Um, definitely. I think the first would be um, my family of origin. I think everyone's family of origin kind of instills certain things in you to become the person you are, especially with my culture. And my culture is very important to me. Um, being mm-hmm. raised in the Bahamas, um, there are certain things that I've learned, especially when it comes to independence, when it comes to family, when it comes to relationships that I take with me everywhere. So mm-hmm. I identify strongly with my culture and how important that is in building community. Um, mm-hmm. I would also say when it comes to like if there's a theorist or a person that really resonates with me, it would be a guy by the name of Milton Erickson. And mm-hmm. he was um, a trained hypnotist as well. And he was the foundation of my core belief and my core therapy method, which is relational therapy. Um, he was self-diagnosed, uh, actually not self-diagnosed. He was diagnosed medically many times with many illnesses, which he actually cured himself. I know it sounds really weird, but he cured himself by changing his thought process, changing how he lived his life, and he built a relationship with his self being one of the core values to him. And so um, I take a lot away from that and how he um, valued having relationships with everything. He says even the air we breathe we should have a relationship with. And he he just Mm -hmm. talked about how fundamental each relationship is in your life, even the ones you don't even think about, like air. Um, Mm. That was a very uh, strong academic influence for me. Um, And along the way, I've had mentors who uh, who have guided me and showed me their ways. And I think what I take um, as being an inspiration is anybody who adds to my life, especially um, one of the core ones would be clients that I've had. 
Each client wow. for me represents a different person who not only I can help, but they can help me to grow. And I think that's how I see them. We're in a relationship together, and I tell them that, like I tell my students in class. I say, this is a journey we're going to take together for as long as we're going to be in it together. And there might be times I know stuff. There might be times you know stuff. So we're going to learn together in this experience. And I think um, every person I meet is a new addition to who inspires me to do or be something um, a little bit different. And I mean that by adding something, adding something of value to um, the society at large. I think in, in, in your work as well, like as you said, you meet all types of clients. Do you find it harder to treat other client, other clients who have credentials and experience like you? I mean, do you see those type of clients? Yes, I've had a few clients that have been therapists, and hmm. I would say we are the hardest clients because <laughs> um, it's hard to not be a therapist. And after hmm. a while, if you break through that and – I would I tell everybody all the time, everybody needs a therapist. Even a therapist needs a therapist. And <laughs> it's just because you have this neutral person who is not invested in anything but your success. Right. So they're not invested in just making money. They're not invested in just knowing your business. They're invested in you being your best self. And that's the mantra I live by as a therapist, and that's the, what I found with even the therapists who've been my clients. They just want to be better people. And so I think um, if you could, if you could afford it, or if you have somebody who acts as your therapist, engage them right. and try to learn as much as you could from them and about yourself during that process. Hmm. Am I, am I, I'm a, a member of a, a, re, of a book club. And in the book club, yeah, the book I have... Club. Several colleagues psychologists. psychologists. And as we're and reading characters, we're the characters, character, uh, when we're discussing characters, rather, characters they rather. seem to they diagnose the characters in the book. The it's so funny. <laughs> 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 so it goes back to what you said, which is sometimes you find yourself, um, it's hard to turn off the therapist in you, even in your personal time. good balance with that. I think I learned that very early on in my career. And even though I have people who constantly question that with me, and I think it's more people than it is myself, but one of my mentors said this a long time ago, and he said to me, I don't work when I'm not being paid. And I know it sounds a little, it could come off a little harsh, but I took that to heart when he said that because he said, I I literally don't work when I'm not being paid to be a therapist. I'm myself. And I, that's why I think it's always harder for other people than it is for us because I have that same mantra. I don't work unless I'm being paid. I turn it off. I have learned to separate Dr. E, which is my therapeutic identity, from Edrica the person. And I think <laughs> it took a while, but we have to all learn to do that in our careers and our personal lives because it, for a while, like, I would not tell people when I started relationships with them what I did because they would want, they would think that I was analyzing them the whole time, even friends. And I'm like, I'm literally not doing it. I'm just trying to be your friend. It doesn't mean from time to time I may not ask questions in different ways than you're probably not used to, but that's just a part of how I ask questions. And it could be, I, I guess it's a part of training. But right. I literally don't consciously work unless I'm being paid, and that's just how I have learned to separate my identities. And hmm. it keeps me grounded, and it keeps me – there's Edrika. There's Dr. E, and she turns that on, but Edrika lives longer than Dr. E probably will. Right. Well said. And I could, I believe there are some challenges to your work. Are there? 
Are there times, is it hard to wring yourself out and walk away from certain clients or circumstances? Or as you said previously, you, you learn to condition yourself, but there are times when it touches at a personal level. Yes. Uh, for me, those times especially happen with my kid clients. And that's because I'm, I consider myself to be a strong kid advocate. Um, not only mm-hmm. because by training and by law, I'm a mandated reporter for anything that may happen to kids, but also because to me, they are the clients without voices. And I mean without voices because a lot of times people miss that they do exist and they, they do have a voice. So I spent, a, I spent a lot of time, especially helping them develop their voice from their standpoint, not from mine or their parents or what society says, but what they really have come to be, because they are little humans. We sometimes forget that. And I think they are the hardest clients for me to have, because especially when they're in situations that are tumultuous in their lives, you want to make sure that somebody sees them, somebody hears them, and somebody advocates for them so that they can Mm -hmm. have the best lives. And so I think those are the clients that always hit it hardest for me. And for a long time in my career, I didn't want to work with kids. But... Somehow they're really attracted to me, and I do a really good job with them, so I couldn't deny the inevitable. So we now have a really good relationship, and I work really good with kids, and I love them now. They're some of my favorite clients to have because they're the most honest. They let you know exactly how it is. Mm, very good point. And I, would, I could imagine as well that some of them may find it difficult to illustrate in, in, in words what they are experiencing, but for the most part, they are like open books. They'll tell you exactly what they feel, and, and, and I think they're forthright. Their innocence provides that. That's very interesting you noted that. I know that you have a lot going on. So you are engaged in and out of the community when you're not working, and I, I see it as well when I, um, that you're, you're making a difference. So what are some of the, the projects or things that you're doing outside of what others may already know? Is there anything new coming up or something you're potentially considering to explore? Right now, I'm actually working on um, looking at ways to presence in the community. So I'm Mm -hmm. trying to figure out um, ways that I can do that. I'm also in the process of um, writing a book. I write it daily, like I would say, not daily, every other day I try to blog on my Facebook for clients and it's it's been really, not for clients or anyone who's who's reading, because I feel like everybody is a potential client even myself. So that's not Mm. me. That's me included. Um, I try to do um, community lectures when I'm always invited to do those to get the messages out there to be in the community with that. And I'm actually um, in the process of writing a weekly article in the newspaper at home in the Bahamas um, in the women's section, trying to encourage uh, women because they they are the number one clients of uh, therapists in general, um, but also engage the other side of the population. I'm going to start some work with the male youth population as well. Because they are an mm. underserved population. And I have a question here actually coming in. I'm going to read the question after I give the number. For those of you who are listening in or would like to speak to Dr. Richardson, please feel free to call in at 347-539-5372. Again, our call in line is 347-539-5372. And if you're shy or bashful, you're welcome to email me as well. Our inbox is standing by at Everyday Folks books at yahoo.com. And so Dr. Richardson, I, I'm going to read the question. It's from Mildred, who is in Georgia. 
And the question is as follows. When is it time to walk away, after, walk away from a relationship after you've done everything for it? I've been in a 10-year um, ten year uh, relationship, marriage with my husband, and we've been attending six sessions of counseling. Of counseling. Okay. Tough question. Well, Mildred, thanks for um, tuning in. And I would say once you've exhausted all of your options, you won't even need to ask that question. And I say hmm. that because when people are done, they're done. And at that point, they're, they have tried everything that they themselves um, are capable of. They've tried everything others have suggested. And okay. there's no really room left for conversation about it because they've done all the things. So if you've done therapy, you've tried to work on the relationship internally, externally, I would say then you know you've done your best and it's time to walk away, especially if you're compromising who you are. Because people forget all the time that, yes, you're in a relationship, but if you lose your identity in that relationship, then you've lost yourself. And once you're gone, how are you going to be good to anybody else? Well said. That means you can't be well good to said. the relationship. You can't be good to um, your children or any your job. You're, you're literally walking day by day and just waiting for the moment where somebody tells you what's next to do or what other thing you need to do on the list. So, Mildred, if you feel like you are at that point, and you know anyone who is at that point, but they've done everything. And I would always tell people, once you've done everything you could on your own, you've seeked consultation from a therapist or some other advisor, whoever you choose to use, and that's done and there's still nothing that has changed for you, then it's time for you to walk away because if you look at yourself in the mirror and you don't know who you are or how this is fitting into your life anymore, then it's time. And it's a, t- a tough decision, but you'll know. You'll wake up that day and you'll know that it's it. You're done. Enough is enough. Hmm. You know, there's but it's part, tough. There are time. It is very tough, and that explains why some individuals choose to remain in toxic relationships. Oh, it Absolutely. does. It explains because um, – especially women. And I want to speak to the women out there because from we were young, we have been socially constructed to be the end all and be all for somebody else. We always choose to put ourselves last on the list. That's what we have been inherently socially taught. I'm not saying that that is not a good method um, foundationally, but at the same time, we have to reach and evolve in our lives so we understand that if we're not our best selves, we cannot be a good girlfriend, wife, mother, career person, anything. And we have to figure out how to put ourselves in the equation. And we should be the first person on the list in the equation because guess what? If mommy's good, the whole house is good. Mm. If I'm good as a person, my my marriage is going to be good. My relationships are going to be good. I'm going to want to go to work. But if we (laughs) don't know who we are, then how do we know how to be there for anybody else? That's very true. And you have to first fix your own house before you move others in it. And I find that sometimes people forget that. People forget that. Because if I'm not of good, like you said, I even tell my students this, as if to you, if I'm not feeling well, I'm staying home. Because at the end of the day, I can't be at my 100% best if I'm not, don't have control of all full faculties of my being. And so that takes a very confident, true person who stands in his or her truth to do that. Because at the end of the day, we want to do what's best for self as well as for others. And so one of the things I I realized, too, is that men don't 
I, I run into this. I don't mean to speak stereotypically, but sometimes we men, we don't like to go to psychologists. In doing so, it kind of, uh, it, 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 it flags us. It signifies something. And what do you think of that? Do you see as many male clients as you do female clients? Or is in, in them, when you do see them, do you, is there, do you have more difficulty getting them to a place of comfort to divulge information? Ironically, lately, my client population has been predominantly male. And I call it the therapeutic wave that happens, not only with hmm. clients um, coming in, but cl- who's, who's contacting me. The majority mm-hmm. of people who have contacted me lately have been males. And I'm like, wow. wow, where is this shift coming from? Because typically, research has proven women not only contact, but also complete therapy or engage in therapy. I think the rate is almost like double the amount of times that a man would ever even think about it. But lately, my core clientele has been the male population. I think it's because we've had a generational shift as to who needs a therapist and why do people go to therapy. And I think that is a value we want to instill in the community that going to a therapist does not mean that you're quote-unquote crazy. It just means that you've realized that you may need somebody else other than yourself or maybe people who know you to help you through this time. And so with my male population, um, a lot of um, what I've seen lately is that they've reached points in their relationships or with their lives that they need some external help. And I've even had a couple um, clients who, in the marriage, it was the man who contacted me saying, look, um, I've tried, I'm not, uh, I've been wrong, and I want to make our, our marriage work, so let me know um, what are some things we can do. Can we come in and see you? Um, I've also had males come in to just talk about transitions in their lives. And so, yes, men do seek therapy um, sometimes in couples and sometimes alone. And I think that anybody who takes the step to do it is a brave person because it's it's revealing some parts of yourself and you know yourself best. And so I always am a champion for those clients who, who take the leap. That's a great comment. A few years ago, actually about 12 years ago, so it wasn't that few, I had one of the most challenging times in my career, Drika. I lost four students, four students, three of them in one weekend due to car accident, two to, due to a car accident, one due to a suicide, and then a week after that, one due to another car accident. And this was the end of the school year, post-prom, the time of year when students are at their happiest and moving forward in the transitions of their lives. I remember very well going to my principal and saying, I think I need someone to talk to as well, because none of my educational training, honestly, as much as I, I'm grateful for it, but none of it prepared me for dealing with the death of a student. And so what did prepare me was my own life and my own belief system. Those things were my, my, my mechanisms, my coping mechanisms for helping not only other students and peers, but even myself through that moment. But then there was a point when I realized, I think I need to talk to someone. So I went to a psychologist, and I'm not afraid to say that, just to get some perspective, because at the end of the day, I wasn't a parent, but I still empathized with the situation. This was somebody's child, someone's loved one. And I find that it, it takes a lot to get to that point. But do you find that the more educated the individual, is there more resistance to psychological support? Or therapy? Um, 
lately I found the more educated, the more open they are to seeking therapy. Um, and that's because they've realized that they can't do it on their own, that there are resources out there. And I think a lot of it is because of we are now, it's becoming more normalized going to a therapist. Um, we see it a lot more on TV, and I just want to say we don't do everything that looks on TV. TV isn't always <laughs> correct. But <laughs> the media has given us a good um, light lately where it says that when people are in crisis, you seek help. And in the help that you seek, depending on the crisis you're in, it's through some form of therapeutic service. And hmm. so I think with that happening, people are now more comfortable, whether educated or not so educated, um, in seeking help from outside sources and not feeling that someone's um, just out to kind of get them or out to know their business, but more just out to help them be a better person. And I think going through the community for generations to come, this will be so normal that we will never even have to ask this question again. And I hope it gets to that point because, yes, you do still have those few out there who are very skeptical. And and I, and that's fine. Go ahead and ask your questions, explore your therapeutic options, and explore your therapist. There should be questions you ask a person who is about to be a part of your most inner self, which is your life. Right. And so once you figure out who that person is and who's best to work with you, then their relationship is only going to get better for you and that other person. Mm, well said. We we both work in, in, in uh, post-secondary, in particular community college settings, as well as in our, our, our respective industries. And in the state college system across America, there is limited to no funding for psychological support, counseling, therapy for students. And we're not just talking about those who live on state, on state grounds, such as in dorms, but just students in general who need some kind of support. So do you find that as a result of these challenges that more students are seeking out their psychology professors or are seeking you out in your, your office hours and time in order to get that support that probably could have been provided through those services if they existed for them? I, I do. And what happens, um, which people um, in general who, who live in societies where voting is something you can do, I tell my students all the time um, in the classroom, you know, the, one of the first things that gets cut from a budget um, when it comes to um, economics, it's education. And after education, mm-hmm. with that goes a lot of those services are mental health services. So we're cutting some of the core things that we need. for a country to survive, then what do we expect to happen? And so, yes, I found a lot of clients, sorry, a lot of students now after class or after a presentation, they will come up and they will talk to me. And uh, my office hours are not only used to help them get through the educational journey, but life is a part of the educational journey. I teach real life in the classroom. That's how I see it. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. a part of real life is helping them get through and maneuver through the academic process. And everything in their daily lives will affect that academic process. And we need more community outlets for people to go through to seek services. Um, there are not as much um, services for people who just may need to go in and talk to somebody or bounce something off of them unless you have some severe mental illness. And I think that's a problem in our community. We have to do something about that. We have to put measures in place. We have to talk to our elected officials and say to them, why isn't this there? 
Mm-hmm. Why, mm-hmm. why isn't our community centers offering free services for anyone who, who needs them? Because a lot of the things that are happening in our society could be avoided if somebody had somebody else to reach out to. Something right. besides, um, and even the lines that we used to have, like a lot of the hotlines that people call in, they don't exist anymore. Mm-hmm. That's true. So we have to figure out why is it okay to cut those things out of our budget? That is a very good point. Because, and... because... Go, no, ahead. go ahead. No, if you finish your thought, I didn't mean to cut you. Cut in. <laughs> no, no, no. I was just going to say, well, once we start to question why things like that are okay, then we we um, bring about change because we want to understand um, that we do have power in controlling our community, and we do that by um, hitting up those people we put in office. Yeah. So often people look at it as if, if it's not happening in my own backyard, it doesn't pertain to me. And they fail to realize that it does pertain to you because the more educated we have, the more health, mentally health, um, healthy uh, people are, the better society is, the, the better they are citizens and contributors to the cause as well. And, and sometimes just outsourcing the support, the problem is not going to work. And that's what's been happening today in higher ed. There's been this creative management approach where there are money set aside, very few dollars, and then they outsource this type of support that you provide to a community agency, which is fine. But then even still, you're talking one or two sessions, and then the student is charged on a sliding scale. It becomes a challenge sometimes. And I feel that if, like you said, if there were, if there was a true interest in, in helping and conditioning the whole person, money, the money will be placed where it needs to be put or, or applied most. You, there's a question actually for and you, Doc. And I was going to say, before you Go get ahead. to that question, we should think about that because um, from a U.S. standpoint, uh, we are one of the most powerful countries in the world, but we are one of the poorest when it comes to education and when it comes to mm-hmm. mental health. There are countries I can think about around the world who give free mental health services. I mean, you it's pay true. higher taxes, but you get all of your health benefits. You get all of your educational benefits. You can go up to sometimes a master's degree free from the government you get your free mental health services your medical services and we got to think about that yes we may pay a little bit more but are we getting all the services we need because not everyone who has a job is even um given those services so it's something we should make accessible for every person in the community Mm -hmm. okay even in even in work industries that some employers are gracious to provide such support and i think it's very great when we see that Actually, we got a couple of the lines are buzzing with you, Dr. Richardson. I have to tell you, I'm getting emails and I'm getting calls. So there is actually a caller here who I like to bring on air. Let's see if we can bring him or her online. And so, caller, you on the air. Good, good afternoon. Welcome to Everyday Folks Radio. You're here with Billy Jones and Dr. Adrika Richardson, psychologist. Your name? Hi, Nikosi Samuel. Hi, Nikosi. How are you today? Where are you calling us from? I'm Canada, Miami. And do you have a question for us, for Dr. Richardson in particular? Hi, Dr. Richardson. Um, well, thank you for the information. It's been very helpful and stuff like that. You did mention that you you usually go on Facebook. Um, do you have that information? Do you have a page on Facebook and a contact number so I can reach you? Sure. Thanks for calling in. Um, yes, Um you can hit it up through my web address. My web address is www.dredrich.com. Again, it's d r 
E-D-R-I-C-H.com. And through my webpage, there's a link for my Facebook page, um, and that way you can like the page, and every two days or so when I make a post, you'll be able to see the post and um, hopefully be inspired by it. Also, my contact number is 813-464-4820 in the U.S. Again, it's 813-464-4820 in the U.S. And in the Bahamas, it's 242-425-0718. Again, it's 242-425-0718. And all that's on my webpage. And Dr. Jones will also have that up on his site um, for you to go ahead and just link to it. Okay, all right. Thank you. And you did mention that you found that in your practice a lot of males are coming in. And as a male, I could, like, attest to that because... Okay. Yes, nowadays we try our best and we don't have any avenue to, to tune to or to really express our feelings. So that's why we seek out counseling because a lot of, uh, again, males, a lot of things are expected from us, but we have no avenue to, you know, express our feelings and stuff like that. So from a male, I guess, why we go to counseling. I even went to a, con- a couple of counseling sessions myself to, you know, to talk to a neutral person to find out and to express my feelings, you know, I mean, and they told me sometimes, yes, you were wrong, you were right, and so forth, but it's just an ear to talk to, to, um, to express your feelings, to vent in a very con- confidential manner. Hmm. Right, and I think I'm glad that you said that, because it's it's becoming very common for um, the male population to do that, and a lot of that is because we have not allowed our males, even with growing up, if you think about it, how many times were you allowed to express your emotions? That's not manly. Don't do that. But we have to come to a point where we realize that men have emotions too, and they need a place to safely express that. So I'm glad that you did that, and thanks for calling in. Uh, no problem. Thank you so much for listening to Kosi. And for All those right. of you who are, and for those of you who are listening, are tuning in now. We're down just about to the last 15 minutes of our show. Thank you for listening to BJ Speaks with our interviewee, Dr. Adrika Richardson, psychologist and extraordinary, I call her. If you'd like to call in and speak to her, you still got a few minutes left. The number is 347-539-5372. Again, that call in line is 347-539-5372. And as well, I do have an email, a, a question coming in from Wayne, Dr. Richardson. Wayne, who is in ATL, Georgia, and his question is as follows. What should I expect during my first session? Because often people do go into those sessions expecting a miracle is going to happen and the first session will be the fix-all. <laughs> so what should Wayne right, expect? That's a very good question. First, I would start before the first session. I tell people every time they call me to do a consultation, most therapists do free consultations. So that's your, that's your first meet or greet, I call it. Over the phone, via Skype, however way your therapist decides to do it, it's the first time. And in that consultation, what I tell people is that it's my time for you to interview me and me to interview you to make sure this would be a good working relationship together. And not only should you do that with me, you should call at least two other people. So I tell them, you need to to have a total of at least three people you've called, you've interviewed and figured out not only which one um, sounds the best, has the best method of therapy that you like, the best payment, but who do you think you can work best with? Because the relationship is first established during that consultation. And and we found um, in therapeutic research that change will happen based more on your therapeutic alliance, that's your relationship with you and your therapist, more than how mm-hmm. much you pay, um, what their methodology is, or the gender of the therapist. After that, during your first session, 
what you want to do is typical sessions, we call them intake sessions. Um, the first half of the session, you're probably going to do a lot of paperwork, a lot of assessments, and also a lot of just um, getting to know it, you with the therapist. And it's a list of questions typically done. Um, I do mine more in a conversational style. Some people do it more in an interview style. But it's a way for your therapist to gather um, kind of a whole picture of what's happening for you. And so they'll ask you questions maybe from the time you were conceived until the time you are at present. And they're trying to get a full look at everything in your life that could be adding or contributing to your current life state. And so mm -hmm. in the first session, um, so it's a lot of information. I call it the information gathering session. And I tell clients that on during the consultation. That session typically for most therapists is longer than um, an hour. It may be an hour, maybe an hour and a half. It could be two hours depending on if it's a, a family of people. And that right. session, um, at the end of the session, you then develop goals that you want to work on over those next, say, six to six to eight weeks or however long your therapy process is. Um, I believe in brief therapy, so um, I typically see clients anywhere from, I call it the one-session miracle, to uh -huh. um, sometimes 12 sessions. Um, I know therapists who see clients six months, maybe a year. It all depends on the issues. And I tell people, um, depending on how many years you took to, to, to make that problem, it may take us that long to undo it, but it depends on how hard you're willing to work, how honest you're going to be in those sessions, and the relationship you have with your therapist. So, First sessions, a lot of information gathering. Try to be as honest as possible because as honest you are as possible, the faster the sessions will go and the faster the therapeutic process. Because most therapists, we don't want to keep you or take your money longer than we need to just because we want you to be your best self. Mm -hmm. Very good point. And there's just a, a question for you. What are the traits or skills and or skills that one should have or consider looking at in themselves if if one wanted to become a psychologist? One, you have to find it. If you like um, to hear and talk to people, a big part of our job is interacting. And there are some people who are not people people. <laughs> There's right. no other way to say that. You don't get you, – you're not very much into building relationships, interested in knowing about other people's stuff because we spend a lot of time listening and a very um, – a lot of time hearing stuff on all levels of a person's identity, and so you want to make sure you can handle that. We spend a lot less time talking, and so you right. have to have very good listening skills. You have to have empathy. Empathy is a strong therapeutic skill. But not It's not innate to people to be empathic with others. Um, you also um, want to be able to deal with diverse populations because you're not always going to get just clients you like. You're going to get clients um, that will stretch you and help you grow as a clinician. Um, wow. You want to make sure, too, that you can do with the training because the training um, can take you all over the place. I've worked for people who have had traumatic brain injuries, so literally sitting in front of a person whose half of their skull is missing. And wow. so that 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 was great growth wow. for my therapeutic experience. Um, and so, again, you have to figure all facets of being with a therapist. And I always tell people, if you think this is the career you want, you should find someone who can mentor you, but also someone who will maybe let you shadow their work so you can see what they're doing, but also someone who will talk to you about it. Um, right. and, I mean, I have students who come in all the time who want to ask me about this profession, and I tell them the truth. They're not always good days, and they're not always days where I make a lot of money, but they're always days where I feel like I've done a good job. Mm. Well said. Well said. And I'm I'm sure you probably utilize um, inductive and deductive reasoning, and you're scanning people's, um, their body language and things of that nature in order to 
arrive at a truth or does that play a role at all? Hmm. Yes. For me and my, my therapeutic stance, I, I pay attention to the whole picture. So your okay. body language in the room, the body language, um, your voice tone, all of that I pay attention to in analyzing the whole person because a lot of times what, what I tell people, what we do differently than other people is that I listen to the things you're not saying. Right. Because those play a huge part and everything you're telling me. For instance, I had a client recently tell me about a very upsetting time in their life, and they were smiling the whole time. Something about that affect, that their facial expression was not matching what was actually being talked about. And so I knew for them, this is something very uncomfortable to talk about. And they were so used to putting on a good front for everybody else, they tried to do it with me. And I said to them um, during that session, I said, um, so when are you going to tell me what's really going on with that? And they said, what are you talking about? I said, this time is for you to be your whole self, not the person you let everybody else think you are. And they were like, how did right. you know that? And I said, I was just waiting for you to be comfortable enough for me to say that to you and for me to call you out on that. But I saw wow. from the first day you walked in. And they said, thank you. Because no one else, everyone else, did either they didn't notice it or they just didn't call them out on it and sometimes we have to be called out on that well sometimes putting that mirror in front of ourselves i always tell the folks especially my students when you look in that mirror every day do you really know what you see do you like what you see do you like what's staring back and very often we, we we're afraid to face our truth and and that sometimes it takes a moment like a, a session with you to come to that realization and that's very helpful and sometimes it may be a tough pill to swallow but it's all part of the growth process. You gotta make, in order to make progress, there's gonna be some pain and some, some challenges, but at the end, it all will, will benefit and end up where things should be. Exactly. I guess that's As a part talk, of my mantra. Go ahead. Yes, it is. I was gonna ask about your mantra, actually. What is your mantra? Because there's so much you've given today. What is your mantra? What do you live by? Your philosophy, or what I have you? There's kind of two parts to my mantra. I, I, um, one of the things you'll see if you ever go to my website is that I believe that changing relationships, changing lives, my whole point is to help you make your life more meaningful. And mm. so that's my kind of therapeutic mantra when clients come in. But I always tell people my real mantra is that we all need a little help sometimes. Right. Right. Oh, and wow. so that, so even myself included, we all need a little help sometimes. And that's what my therapeutic stance is that, don't come into a therapeutic office um, with the ideas that we think we know it all because we don't. We're learning about you from the person who knows you best, yourself. And so even us as therapists, we need help sometimes. And so once we all get in that um, idea that, you know what, we're told all the time to be strong and, and have mm -hmm. everything together, but some days are not good days. Right. Some days we have to really live moment by moment, not even day by day, I tell people. Sometimes it's just moment by moment. Go one moment to the next. And if that's mm -hmm. all you can do, do that. And when you can't do that anymore and you think you need some help, find somebody who's willing to help you because we all do need a little help sometimes. Mm. Well, I want to say thank you so much. Dr. Richardson, you have provided so much insight for me. Every time I speak, listen to you, I, I'm taking notes. You should see the scribbles I'm making over here on my end. And I know that <laughs> others as well. There are folks who are emailing me and, they're, and I'll continue to feel those questions to you because you really made such a tremendous impact in your conversation. I'm going to say to those who are out there, for those of you who are interested in, in connecting with Dr. Richardson, 
rest assured that I'll be pay placing a link for her under my Who I'm Supporting section of my homepage at www.billypauljones.com. Again, that's www.billy, with a Y, pauljones.com. All one word, no, no underscores. And there you'll be able to link to Dr. Richardson's page, as well as her Facebook and other constructs that she uses for, for communication. And Dr. Richardson, I say this to you, you are always welcome here in Everyday Folks. You know this is not your last visit, by the way. So I will be having you back in a few months' time to come back in and check in. And anything that we could do here at Everyday Folks Network to support your efforts, know that we, you have a home here in EF. And please allow us to be part of your world and the incredible journey you're on and making a difference and transforming the lives of others through your practice. Any final words for us? I just want to say thanks for the opportunity and thanks to everyone for listening in, um, emailing or calling. And if I can be any help to you, just let me know. Um, again, reach out through um, Billy's support page. And I hope everybody realizes when they just need a little help sometimes. We all here to help build better, healthy relationships. Thanks. Thank you so much, doctor. You take care. And for those of you who are tuned, listening now, you just heard an amazing conversation. These hours fly by, and I'll be honest, it's not because of me. It's because of the great people who I get to engage with and speak to on a daily basis. You just heard Dr. Adrika Richardson, psychologist, who spoke on good communication, health relationships, and all the other things that make us great individuals and things that we need and sometimes sleep under the rug. As a writer, I spend my time understanding the psyche of others. And I, for instance, will write in the first person voice of characters who I myself have never been, whether it be culturally or gender-based. But nonetheless, in order for me to get into that character's mind, I need to understand the psychological ramifications of what that person is experiencing or has experienced, even if it's from a general or stereotypical point of view of that per person's gender or culture. So even as a writer, there is a, a branch of psychology and in order to go in and write about it, you got to do your work. And so with that in mind, I say thank you to Dr. Richardson and all those who are out there who are doing this incredible work. People need people. And I firmly believe that we as humans, we were not built to go along in life and, and, and weather this thing called life alone. We were conditioned. We were created. We were created in order to provide support for others and to be in the company of others. And so as you go on your day, please realize that we at Everyday Folks, we're very grateful in meeting the individuals who often don't get the opportunities to have their voices heard or to see themselves on the front covers of magazines. Many times it's not because they're doing the true work. They're out in the trenches making a difference in our society. And so thank you so much for tuning in to Everyday Folks. Well, next week, we're going to be tuning in for additional guests. We have a few great individuals who are lined up, and I assure you, each person, each week as I do this, I get so excited because it just reminds me again and again of the great things that Everyday Folks has done in my life for the past 12 years of, his, of, of, his, of its existence. And so continue to tune in. If you have any questions, you're always welcome to reach out to me through everydayfolksbooks at yahoo.com. That, that email address, again, is everydayfolksbooks at yahoo.com, and I will do my best to get back to you and to connect you to any of the guests. And you may tune in online on my page as well to, to review the archive of previous shows. 
all of them are available 24 hours a day for your listening pleasure. Until next time, I thank you so much for tuning in to Everyday Folks. This is BJ, Billy Jones, author of Everyday Folks, signing off. Take care and a happy Super Bowl Sunday.